Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. And welcome back to the Natural History Cupboard podcast, the place where the weird and wonderful parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host, Gareth, and with me as always are my co-hosts, Drew. Drew, say hi. Hello. Hello. And Aaron, say hi. Greetings and salutations, cupboard dwellers, and welcome to what looks like two solid weeks of world leaders posturing and peacocking over a climate crisis they couldn't give two shits about, particularly we, Britain, whose government but yeah. rather argue over some false idea of lost sovereignty, and who gets to pillage the seas around here of fish and actually do something that preserves the fish for future decades to come. Did you, uh, did you write we, we, that yourself? Yeah, did, did you write that down? I did write it down. <laughs> I wanted to make sure that I stabbed them good and proper, straight off the bat. Boris, if you're listening, (laughs) which, Mm. you know, I mean, I kind of hope you are, I kind of hope you don't, because not really. I mean, what else is he doing, to be fair? Well, I don't know. But, um, yeah. I I put it to our listeners that we should all be seriously concerned uh, about the eventual usefulness of any words that they vomit over the next couple of weeks, and then hold them accountable for all of it. Yeah. I'll cover well, COP26 climate crisis-related news uh, as a summary in the episode after it ends, I think. Oh, dear. Right, anyway, let's uh, <laughs> let's get on with what we've got coming up in this week's episode. Um, so this ep- episode, uh, we've got, um, well, fun news of uh, stuff that might be in a river near you. Um, Aaron's got <laughs> uh, a creature feature about an animal that might be in a sea near you. And... Um, we're then going to be talking about animal sounds and how they're not what they are. So uh, let's let's get into lies. it. Lies everywhere. It's the news. Okay, we're into this week's news, and this week we've got two very Britain-centric pieces of news we're we're <laughs> we're britain britain news so we're we're not we're not gb news we're not gbb's so we're... oh geez no we're not gb news gbb's <laughs> it's you know basically for toddlers um oh, that went well didn't it thankfully <laughs> anyway um so drew's gonna start us off with some good news yes i am i have very very good news this week. I don't know if this has exploded all over everyone else's social media, but it really has on mine. And this is the news that a vote was held at the end of last week on whether fox trail hunting should be banned on National Trust land. And the results were in favour of banning it at fucking last. Uh, I'm going to do my absolute best to try and keep this mainly to this news about banning trail hunting on National Trust land, rather than a full-on rant about fox hunting uh, but no promises there um <laughs> so a red fox creature feature will be coming in the future uh, and that will talk more about this really we'll go a bit more in depth i suppose so yeah. outside of the uk or who are otherwise unaware the national trust is a charity for heritage conservation uh, they have quite a lot of land and like a lot of other charities they run mostly on membership donations and also you might be wondering hey isn't fox hunting already banned in the uk and yes it is it is it's illegal uh so i've got the uk government website up here and it says this is the the law it is illegal to hunt foxes with a pack of dogs you can use dogs to simulate hunting 
for example, drag or trail hunting. Remember that bit. Uh, you can use up to two dogs to chase, flush or stalk foxes out of hiding if the fox is causing damage to your property or the environment. Your dogs can't go underground to find the foxes unless they're threatening wild or game birds that kept for shooting. Only one dog can go underground at any time. And you must shoot the fox quickly after, it, after it's been found and carry proof that you own the land you're shooting on or written permission from the landowner. And finally, it says you can be fined and your dogs or hunting equipment taken away if you break the law. Good. So, just, let me, um, just let me move that mm. bus through that really wide gap. <laughs> I'll go sideways. Yeah. Um, so that's what the law says. It is a bit shit, isn't it? It's basically saying, yeah, no, uh, fox hunting is illegal, but uh, don't worry, there's quite a few loopholes here. But as Gareth said, enough to drive a bus through. So one of those loopholes is that trail hunting is not illegal. Trail hunting is basically where an artificial scent is laid out for dogs to catch on, uh, catch on to and follow. The toffs and red jackets follow on horses and it simulates the real raw high octane experience of chasing a small animal until it's exhausted, ripping it to shreds until barely atoms remain, whilst also burning a 50 pound note in front of a homeless man. And finally, going back to home to your wife and sister, same person, who won't have sex with you because your life and relationship is hollow and critically unhappy. The <laughs> ultimate problem with trail hunting is that a lot of people fear it's being used as a smokescreen for the real thing. And there's a lot of evidence that suggests that's true. Mm. Trail hunting has been allowed on the National Trust land uh, since 2005. Uh, so, yeah, that's 2005. 2005 until we decided that the traditional shredding up of a helpless animal should probably be illegal to a nation of animal lovers. So the article I'm, I'm reading from The Independent says a total of uh, 76,816 votes were cast for the motion to ban trail hunting with 38,184 votes against and 18,047 uh, who just abstained because they presumably just didn't give a shit, which makes them just as bad. Uh, now, the results are not binding. <laughs> We've heard that before. Okay. Uh, and the Board of Trustees is expected to consider the outcome soon. With the National Trust owning 620,000 acres of land, uh, the ballot was seen as having the potential to disrupt the future of fox hunting in England because the a ban will severely restrict space for the blood sport. Together with other major landowners, the charity suspended trail hunting a year ago after a leak of Zoom meetings at which hunt chiefs from across the UK discussed how to create a smokescreen. These webinars led to Mark Hankinson, director of the uh, Masters of Foxhounds Association, uh, being convicted of encouraging people to illegally chase wild animals and being ordered to pay a fine of £3,500, which is probably the sort of... of evil. Yeah. Finally, I just wanted to add <laughs> that this same vote was done four years ago, so a vote to ban trail hunting um, on National Trust land, and it was narrowly lost for those in favour of murder. The board was found to have used discretionary proxy votes to defeat the motion to ban this. But yeah, I guess, I, I guess we'll just find out where this goes. But the results are, are pretty unanimous, I think. I know a lot of people still voted against it, but it's pretty unanimous. And a number of people have cancelled their National Trust membership because they allow trail hunting. So mm. let's hope that and this vote will, uh, will force their hand into uh, I mean, doing the right thing, as if your hand needed to be forced into doing such a thing. Yeah. But yeah, there we go. Yeah, oh, I mean, it's, it's crazy that in, a, in this country it still even remotely goes on. 
Yeah. I'd just like to point out I am against fox hunting as well, just in case any of that wasn't clear. I mean, it was it was very sort of middle of the road, you know. You were, I you I, were yeah, I was. I've mincing my words I mean, like that... a politician there. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, we are a uh, nation of animal trophy lovers. Yes. <laughs> yeah. True. That is a good way of putting it. Well, we'll go on from uh, from Drew's good news with with a tinge that was good news. <laughs> that was good news <laughs> with a tinge of uh, of. Of sadness to it, but uh, we'll go on to one that is a bit more sad, a bit smellier, and and nowhere near as uh, as possible good an outcome with with my news. Mine is uh, is also UK based because this week has been very much a a week of uh, environmental news from the UK and and just the shocking lack of care for our environment in this country. And it's all rivers and beaches in England and Wales. Uh, where raw sewage is being dumped. And I've taken this particular article, it was in many or pretty much all the, the newspapers around, you know, around the country for this, but I've taken this one specifically from the Daily Mirror. Now, I know mm. both of you would be thinking, that's odd. Why? Yeah, why have I gone for a newspaper that's not renowned for its uh, journalistic integrity, should we say? I might have a guess at why you've done that. Well, I've is done it, because... it for... Go on. Well, go on. Actually, yeah. No, so go on. I've done it for the very same, re- uh, for the very simple reason that this just shows that a paper which can be so pro-government, can be so pro-Brexit, uh, <clears throat> can then spin a story around to basically sell papers and not really have any sort of real, real care for the subject. And I would say that that's probably quite clear because the article itself is only about half a page long. Um, right. So I padded this out with with other bits from other papers as well. And it finishes on a thing of 10 pictures of the royals you won't believe or something like that. So, uh, yeah, you know, it's it's the important news stories. But um, yeah. essentially number five this... will shock you because it's... Oh, of course, it's always number five. Because it's Prince Andrew. Oh, actually, no, that wouldn't be shocking, would it? <laughs> <laughs> essentially, the, the mirror was known for backing Brexit and heavily influencing a lot of people's votes on things but in the process of doing that with the lorry shortage coming into the uk that's actually meant that a lot of the chemicals used in wastewater treatment plants throughout the country have not been able to get to wastewater treatment plants so a lot of these wastewater treatment areas have just gone with their backup plan which is the same backup plan that has been running for years which is when things start to overflow just let it flow into the river or into the sea and a lot of people were amazingly shocked by this, that we are essentially allowing raw, untreated sewage to flow into our rivers and into our seas around all of the UK. Um, there are areas that are far worse for it. There are areas that are better for it, but nowhere is effectively safe, uh, which is a lovely thought. So um, the article goes on, says uh, human waste uh, was pumped into England's rivers 400,000 times last year. However, Tory MPs last week voted against the amendment to the Environment Bill, which aimed to stop the waterways uh, from being used as open sewers. So um, new maps uh, show all the places where raw sewage <clears throat> dumped into rivers and beaches around England and Wales. These are interactive maps as well. They're actually quite uh, good if you go and look at, uh, look at them. The human waste is sometimes pumped out of the sewage system and into rivers or seas uh, through safety release valves called combined sewer overflows. Nice sort of non-committal name for these uh, these pipes, mm. basically. 
um, which tends to happen. Not shit after... dispensers. <laughs> yeah, basically. Uh, it tends to happen after heavy rain. Uh, rain. So the so-called storm overflows uh, are only supposed to take place under exceptional circumstances. Now, these exceptional circumstances have happened 400,000 times in England last year. So that's an awful lot of exceptional circumstances. I'd imagine uh, it's not that different year on year, to be honest with you, Gareth. Well, it's actually going up from mm. what uh, some people have been reporting because we are experiencing more rain. We're experiencing more severe rain. So mm. that means that these areas get flooded an awful lot more as climate change kicks in. It makes things far wetter in a country that's already very, very wet. So, yeah, you would, you would uh, imagine that's only going to get worse. Yeah. So despite the fact that we've had um, 400,000 of these exceptional circumstances uh, in just a year, despite this, uh, Tory MPs voted against the amendment to a bill which would have prevented companies from dumping untreated sewage in rivers and seas. Beaches up and down the country have been contaminated with human waste. Uh, and the, the interactive maps that I was saying are from the Rivers Trust uh, that show... Uh, the waterways hardest hit by overflows, um, most of them, as you probably uh, won't be surprised, are around places like major cities, Manchester, Leeds, Sheffield, Newcastle, Birmingham, Cardiff are some of the uh, the big hitters on this list that have basically got an awful lot of it running into their rivers. Um, sewage yeah. is also poured into the sea through release valves along the coast. Hotspots of the, these include Plymouth, uh, Havant, the Isle of Wight, Liverpool, and uh, essentially, it's it just shows, you know, these areas are just all around the country. The shallow seas are contaminated by sewage, which can make people sick, can also uh, raise the risk of bacteria such as uh, salmonella and E. coli. And that means that, well, you go paddling, there's a chance you might bring something home from the beach and it's not going to be a stick of rock. <laughs> it's going to be a dodgy turn. <laughs> so uh, a Labour MP um, said England's rivers have been described as open sewers. Diseases such as hepatitis A, leptospirosis have also been linked to some of these sewage leaks uh, into uh, the UK waters. Um, although uh, the Environment Minister, George Eustace, has told MPs to vote against the amendment, which is just, I mean, it just shows the absolute insanity this current government has is they are telling people to vote against their own people's interests. 22 Tories apparently defied uh, this and sided with Labour and the Lib Dems uh, and other opposition parties to basically vote against it. But the government very much has an overall majority. So it's sort of pissing into the wind, really. So or pissing into a river, shall we say, because <laughs> you may as well at this point. Um, so Labour MP uh, Dr Rosina Aline Khan uh, tweeted that the Tories have failed to take action against water companies who repeatedly discharge raw sewage into rivers. Labour will continue to push for amendments to the Environment Bill that would uh, outlaw this practice. Uh, and it's not too late for the Conservatives to change course. When it comes to uh, this, the, this whole thing anyway, the water companies themselves are not very heavily regulated they're not very heavily inspected and they can get away with an awful lot of this because they are a basic monopoly over they're private this. companies aren't they yeah yeah um, no and the moment you privatize things well standards start slipping prices go up and it's the same year on it's year a, same yeah it's, it's the same with anything it's it stops becoming more of a public amenity and more about profit 
basically, mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah, we we end up seeing spills as well, which are heavily quotation marked. Uh, the uh, the Environment Agency have said that spills uh, have soared more than two thousand two hundred percent in four years. Yeah, so that's a shocking number. Uh, <clears throat> discharges of untreated water have included excrement, condoms, toilet paper, and this is all apparently totally fine under these exceptional circumstances, um, which is uh, also put down as torrential rain, which, well, all three of us live in Devon, and uh, I think we had torrential rain today, wouldn't you say? For at least oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, the local the, river. Oh, well, the past few days, actually, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and finally, uh, river watchdogs say that the uh, the scale of the sewage release shows that it's become a routine part of water management, which uh, I'm putting in huge quotation marks there because water this management. isn't managing water. <laughs> this is managing not to watch water. This is managing to just go, yeah, it's fine. Managing water by turning a blind eye. Yeah. Essentially, we're relying on a sewage system that hasn't been updated since the Victorian era. So um, with parties not wanting to do anything to it, because you could spend millions of pounds updating Britain's sewers and, and you know, water treatment facilities. No one's ever going to see it. So you're not going to get any votes for it. So Absolutely. no one ever wants to put any effort <clears throat> in to change those sort of things, which is ultimately very, very sad. Mm. Very sad it, for fr- anyone who likes to go in the water. Thank you for mm. covering this, Gareth, because... Mm. Yeah, this came out regarding HGV drivers as well being able to yeah. to dump a couple of weeks ago, and I wanted to cover it then, but it was my turn to do creature feature. If it's I a... could just add something that if you are like me, someone who spends a lot of their recreation in and around bodies of water, Surfers Against Sewage have an app. It's a free app called the Safer Seas Service app, uh, and it's basically live sewage reports. It's not just dumping in the rivers, as Gareth was saying, the sewage overflows out into the ocean anyway, but anything that's in the anything that's in the river inevitably ends up in the sea. Mm. Um, so you can you can check in on, on this app. Uh, like I say, it's a safer sea surface app uh, by the uh, Surface Against Sewage. It will tell you what where's safe to take a dunk, where's unsafe to take a dunk. Change your wording on that one, but yeah, yeah. um, and uh, probably less. (laughs) Well, taking a dump in these bodies in these bodies of water is is part of the problem, but it will take you where it's tell you where it's safe and where it's not safe, and it also it it updates with storms and stuff, so it's good Mm. one to keep it going. Mm. I mean, ultimately, to prevent this sort of thing in the future. The one biggest thing that everyone in the UK can do is vote out this government. The main thing we could be doing is is getting rid of them. And the first step to that is well, voting them out and then trying to fix what uh, or at least putting pressure on your local MP. There is a list of all of the MPs and which constituencies they're from that voted for this event uh, for this amendment. So um mm-hmm. If you're in one of those constituencies, and I believe we're in one of those as well, of course, oh, yeah. write, <laughs> write to your MP and let them know how you feel, because we should be making them held accountable for everything that they do that damages our country, your country. Anyway, country needs you. Yeah, damn straight. Take anyway. back your power. <laughs> let's, let's swim a bit further out from the rivers, swim past the uh, 
the, the brown floaters and, and look out for something a bit bigger and a bit darker in colour and something that uh, is a truly apex predator um, with Aaron's Creature Feature. It's the Creature Feature! Right, we're into this week's Creature Feature, where Aaron is taking us into the depths of the ocean once more to go looking for a, well, an apex predator indeed. Um, so, yeah, you don't need to go too far out of your rivers to, uh, for this creature feature, uh, Gareth, but we'll get into, get into that in a minute. So, yeah, so today we're going to be looking into orcas uh, from the murky grey surf of the British Isles, which is apparently polluted with everyone's shit, to the crystal clear waters of the Mediterranean. Uh, you can find them in the icy Arctic depths and the tropical Pacific coastlines. Orca can be found in every ocean, most seas, and even some rivers, Gareth. Oh. Not eating your shit. Well, I hope not. I Yeah, I'd like to think they're not. Brown turd being confused as a salmon there. Anyway, the striking white markings found on the underbelly, just behind the eyes, and low on the flanks beyond the dorsal fin, is contrasted against the deep black body, uh, complete with grey saddle. Again, just behind the dorsal fin, it's an unmistakable appearance and acts as disruptive patterning uh, to basically break up the shape of the animal, allowing the orca to be a successful predator. But we won't talk too much about their uh, their appearance because literally everybody knows what an orca looks like. Um, there is a little bit of uh, variation between the different types, but um, it's all essentially the same. They can grow up to 26 foot, that's 8 metres, not that conversions will matter soon, thanks to Brexit, and 6 tonnes uh, in in weight, which is about 5.9 long tonnes and 6.6 short tonnes, if I've remembered that the right way around. Uh, they are the largest member of the dolphin family. So their life cycle is, is pretty well known for the most part, because these guys are very, very well studied and documented. Despite the apparent difficulty in estimating a distribution for an animal of this size, range and population density, we can confidently surmise that they have a preference for the higher latitudes in their range, as well as uh, coastal environments. That being said, more and more evidence is coming out regarding populations that inhabit deeper territories, such as underwater canyons near continental shelves and such, which is something I touched on before, if I remember right. Um, studies into population densities seem to suggest that the highest densities occur in the following areas. So you're looking at the Norwegian coast of the Northeast Atlantic, the Aleutian Islands uh, and Gulf of Alaska in the Pacific, and the, uh, sorry, the Antarctic coast in the Southern Ocean. So that seems to be high density areas where you're like, probably likely to see them. We're still unsure of their migratory patterns, and some of the best studied pods in various locations can be predicted to present themselves at certain times of year, only to disappear at other times of the year, with researchers still being none the wiser as to where they've gone, despite decades of research in those particular pods. It's quite an interesting uh, thing, that. Their social complexity is comparable to elephants and, and some primates. Taking the northeastern Pacific resident orca populations as an example, because they're particularly interesting, they actually stay with their matriarchal group for their entire lives. Uh, and this group is known as a matriline, not a pod. Uh, and these groups basically consist of the eldest female, 
with her offspring and the descendants of her female offspring. So her sons and daughters stay with her and any um, offspring through her female line. Individuals may split from the matriline for a few hours, but it is a stable group that will, they'll, they'll come back together. They don't spend too long apart. Related matrilines will remain in contact and spend a lot of time together, separating for weeks, but rejoining again and again and again. And this is what we call a pod. Uh, it doesn't stop there, though. Several pods using the same dialect and uh, with a common kind of more distant related matriarchal ancestor can join together for periods of time. And these congregations are referred to as clans. And then the final step in resident orca high society is the community. And this consists of completely unrelated clans who regularly associate with each other despite a difference in dialect. And that, my lovely cupboard dwellers, is nothing short of fucking incredible. The strength of familial bond, the depth of communication and their sense of community is something that we should all be very envious of, I think. The fact that they can communicate for essentially almost different languages, whereas English people struggle to go on holiday and order a beer, is quite remarkable. Anyway, females mature at 10 years of age, reaching peak fertility at around 20 years. They appear to be able to breed up until they're 40, after which fertility drops quite sharply and the animal enters into a menopause. It's one of few animals that actually do so. They can live to see 80 years old, though, and some have actually been found, we think they're actually older. Males, on the other hand, they mature at 15 years of age, but they don't tend to breed till later, sometime in their 20s, um, although different sources gave slightly different accounts. They live to see about 30 years of age, but have been known to reach 60. They mate with females from unrelated pods, which obviously is, is a uh, kind of a prevention of inbreeding in a similar way to many social animals. Gestation appears to be between 15 and 18 months, after which a single calf is born, and females will give birth once every five years. Um, weaning of the calf begins at a year and ends at two years. So they've got quite a low fecundity as well, actually. So what's in the name? They were dubbed by ancient sailors who observed them hunting as Asina Bayenas, uh, which you can probably guess means whale killer. In modern times, this name has obviously been switched around to give us the killer whale name that we so often use these days. Their predatory behaviour is further reflected in their scientific name, which is Orsinus orca. Orsinus meaning kingdom of the dead, and orca is actually a type of whale, or was a type of whale. So their prey, considering that they're such uh, avid hunters, as, as Gareth said, they're kind of the apex predator of the oceans. It's kind of difficult to describe orca hunting methods as such because they employ so many different techniques for the prey items that they hunt. Most orca populations appear to be quite generalist in their dietary choices. However, there are some specialist populations and even extra specialist pods. Generally speaking, orcas will hunt around 30 different types of fish, 30 different species of fish, I should say, including salmon, which they are hunted on an individual basis, Herring, which they actually carousel hunt. Uh, so that's basically they herd them into an ever tightening ball and then they kind of force them to get even tighter by strategically blowing bubbles. And then they herd them up close to the water's surface before they're dispatched with a strike of a tail fluke. And any dead or unconscious herring are then 
hoovered up. Uh, and also they, other, other fish species will be sharks and rays, which feature quite heavily, particularly in the New Zealand uh, territories. Sharks are often herded to the surface and slapped with their tail as well. Uh, and examples include common fresher shark, blue sharks, baskin sharks, shortfin mako and smooth hammerheads. Rays, on the other hand, require a slightly different hunting technique to be employed. Uh, so they're cornered somewhere near the ground. Uh, they're then grabbed and taken up to the surface to be killed. And a few example species include eagle rays, long tail rays and short tail rays. Um, whale sharks, broadnose sharks and great white sharks are also known entries into the orca menu list. In fact, whilst the two species are known to compete where their diets overlap, um, it's evident that wherever, whenever orcas arrive in an area, the great white sharks flee. Um, and for good reason, they're very, very handy at uh, dispatching great white sharks. In addition to fish, 32 cetacean species have been documented as orca prey, which really kind of drive home, drives home their, uh, their name. Uh, these include large specimens such as minke whale, grey whale, sperm whale, and even blue whale. In the blue whale's case, it seems that multiple pods tend to uh, kind of team up on the hunt, and upwards of 50 individuals have been witnessed basically harassing the victim. Um, they kind of split off into groups of five or six, and basically attempt to drown the blue whale. Um, this type of hunting can actually take several hours. Predation by orcas may actually influence great whale migrations uh, when and where their calves are present. So if these great whales that we're speaking about, um, if they have calves with them, the presence of orcas will encourage them to migrate. When hunting these larger species, orca typically attack the young or infirm. And with younger calves, orca will chase the calf and the mother, uh, drive them to exhaustion before eventually separating the mother. And then they surround and drown the calf because obviously whales need to come up to the surface to breathe. So just keep them down low. Uh, I believe there's actually some good footage online uh, of this type of hunting. Additionally, the orca diet also includes around 20 species of pinniped which they disable with a smack from their powerful tail flukes and use as hunting practice for their calves. Orca have learned a unique hunting technique or several unique hunting te techniques for, for this type of quarry, including beaching, which is an unnatural behaviour for, uh, for all whales. It goes against their instinct. and They basically chase them into the shallows and beach themselves, catch the, uh, the pinniped, uh, which is like a seal or a sea lion or such, and um, drag it back into the water, flopping about like a worm. <laughs> and then, of course, there's spy hopping. And this involves basically hopping their heads and almost half of their body out of the water, just enough to spy uh, any prey on the ice flows. Usually this is followed by wave hunting, which is where a group of, uh, of orca will swim at the ice flow, causing a wave to form. And that will tip the flow and wash the victim off into the water where he very quickly gets caught. Such species may also serve as a substitute for the great whales because uh, we actually think that great whales were once the major food source for some orca populations pre-industrial whaling. But the impact of that industry basically destroyed great whale populations and likely affected the availability as prey to our, to our orca friends. So well done there. Ever the intelligent and adaptable predator, Orca have also learned that the booming sound of explosive harpoons, nasty, 
that they use in uh, marine mammal hunting, particularly whaling, means an opportunity to scavenge an easy meal. So we've actually helped them along with that, but not in a good way. Sea otters also feature infrequently in orca cuisine, as do, much to my surprise, terrestrial mammals such as deer, which are often caught while swimming between land. Um, occasionally, orca have been found to cannibalise by scavenging from the remains of a, a dead orca. They'll also capture seafaring birds, such as cormorants, uh, from time to time. And whilst it is probably untrue that orca kill for no reason, there are actually kills for which no reason is obvious, uh, which is what has popularised that theory. So I want to talk a little bit about popularity and, and with a little bit of myth-busting in this, actually. So uh, orca have kind of experienced peaks and troughs with regard to their popularity. In the 90s, with Free Willy popularising the species, people absolutely loved them. Nowadays, it appears to have become the edgelord thing to hate on them. Uh, this is undoubtedly due to their oversaturation, uh, so orca fatigue, if you will, caused by the BBC's penchant for featuring them in every piece of marine wildlife media that they produce, often neglecting to show the plights of other cetacean species. In addition to this, Blackfish, which is a mockumentary produced by nutcases who got hold of information decades out of date and then carefully edited interviews of former SeaWorld employees to take their words far out of context, has helped to influence a not particularly well-informed movement to pressure and bully uh, SeaWorld into making rash decisions with their orca programme. Uh, on that note, the fact is SeaWorld do more for conservation and marine habitats and marine species worldwide before breakfast than any of you do in your lifetimes. So you should really be backing off SeaWorld and supporting them, to be honest. You can't just release orcas into the wild. That's how you end up with tragedies like Keiko's death. Keiko, by the way, is the real name for Willy in that movie. In cultures around the globe, this species has made an impact, a huge impact, in fact. I was quite surprised by the sheer amount of uh, cultural importance they have. Spirituality, and as a result, artefacts of artistic and historic significance, have featured orca prominently. So the uh, I'm going to be pronouncing a few like First Nation peoples uh, names and like 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 the tribe names. I could butcher these names, so I apologise in advance. So the first one up is Kwakuto. They saw them as a as deceased tribe chiefs who were then reincarnated as underwater rulers, complete with sea lion slaves and dolphin soldiers. Similarly, the Nuchanuf thought of orcas as the souls of their deceased chiefs. And in the mythology of the Haida people, um, they had them inhabiting towns and houses in an undersea kingdom. So they're all quite similar, really. In Ainu folklore, orca were known as Ripan Kamoi, the offshore god, and traditional funerals would be held for dead orca that they found. The Yupik people of Siberia believe that orca and wolves are one and the same species, which shows a great depth of insight on their part considering the similar social behaviours. But they believe that the animals are in wolf form during the winter months, and then they return to the sea in the summer months in the form of the orca. And then, as always, Western cultures have a far less magical perception of orca, and as such, far less of a true respect. As a personal note, I actually often wonder if it's this Western view of other species as savage beasts 
that has something to do with the teachings in monotheistic Abrahamic religions that dominate the political and cultural spectrums over here. In modern history, we've seen them as dangerous creatures from the depths to be feared more than ad admired. Uh, in many ways, we actually gave them their killer moniker. And we often label them as pests too, due to their perceived uh, competition with fishermen. So we'll move on from there and go into how to identify an individual because there's very few things in life more thrilling than, than whale watching, I must, I must say, especially when you go all the way to Iceland and don't see anything. Um, so how to identify an orca? Individually, orcas can actually be distinguished by the shape of their dorsal fin, tail fluke and the grey saddle. However, if you're not someone who knows a pod uh, and is trying to individually identify uh, the personalities there, and you're just trying to cite them as a species, there's a few markers to look at. So orca don't tend to display the fluke in anticipation of a deep dive, uh, like the um, sperm whale that I covered the other week does. Instead, you'd be looking for the spy hopping behavior that involves the animal raising almost half the body out of the water uh, to have a good look at you before gently sinking back down again. By this point, you'll know you're looking at an orca thanks to the striking coloration. So that's a pretty clear cut identification. If, however, you did see the tail fluke in action, you're basically looking for a small triangular paddle-like fluke, the top of it being black and the white of it being underneath. And the can the, you know what orcas look like. The contrast is, is remarkable. The dorsal fin is very distinctive compared to their cousins. It's very tall, very straight, and almost a perfect isosceles triangle when you're looking at a glance. A bit like a blunt knife kind of cutting through the surface of the water, slightly curved backwards and pushing close to about two meters in height in, in males. Uh, females is somewhat smaller. The blowhole, because you might remember I said that blowholes and, uh, and, and the spouts that they produce are unique to the species. In orcas, it's rounded and posi positioned somewhat centrally on the top of the head between the eyes, uh, just forward of those white patches. And the spout that is produced is low and bushy. Uh, so it's quite easy to spot. Uh, orca are known to breach, like some other uh, whales do. It's essentially jumping high and straight out of the water and then splashing down pretty much on their sides. So that's another thing to look for. Uh, I want to do a little bit of myth busting, as I said, but I'm going to be very careful as I answer the next three points, um, which are popular questions regarding the species in captive care. So first one uh, that people tend to ask is uh, whether or not infant side, sorry, infanticide is unique to captivity. So in case you didn't know, infanticide is the practice of adults killing babies. It was once very popular, well, I guess it still is to an extent, very popular to um, believe and preach that on, only captive orca practice infanticide and that it's to do with stress or anxiety that people think captive orca suffer. It is, however, understood that this does happen in the wild, which I think maybe the three of us would think was obvious. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it happens in, in most species to an extent. Yes. Um, so, yeah, the first recorded incident is actually quite recent. It's, it, it was in December 2016, and that was off the coast of British Columbia, where a calf was attacked by an adult male and his mother, apparently to win 
an opportunity to breed with the calf's mother. All of these individuals belong to the same pod. It's not unique to orca, as Gareth was saying, in fact. Uh, not only do many carnivore species practice this, but bottlenose dolphins are actually notorious for it. So you can say myth-busted. It's not unique to captivity, uh, and it's not just orca that do this. The next one is an incredibly popular question to ask, and that is, are bent fins unique to captivity? We've all seen Free Willy, right? Mm-hmm. Years ago. <laughs> but the distinctive curve oh, yeah. of a collapsed fin yeah we know about that one Mm -hmm. so this is another thing that despite it being very easy to find information out there it's even easier to find information that blames captivity due to the sheer volume of zoo hating websites particularly sea world hating websites that are out there but the answer is quite simply no it's not unique to captivity the fin is curving over to one side resembling like the dream wave of any surfer it's it's really not unique dorsal fins are not supported by a bone it's literally just collagen which is like a fibrous connective tissue and what is occurring is essentially the breaking down of that collagen most likely uh, as a result of temperature uh, and in particular high temperature it's not likely linked to space afforded to the species in captive settings however if you ask any zookeeper or any aquarist we would all agree that any animal in our care could do with more space. Mm. Um, But what is likely linked to captive orca is that they spend more time at the water's surface rather than dive. And thus they're exposed to warmer air for longer periods of time than their wild counterparts. Mm. That's probably what causes it in captivity. However, in the wild, it's, it's quite a common phenomenon in wild orcas that spend their time in warmer climates for longer longer durations so that's why it's it's quite prevalent in both wild and uh, and captive populations and the third question is are human deaths unique to captivity and this is something that i think social media has a huge responsibility for because when things happened in in like sea world and places it's blown up all over the internet however when uh, a paddle boarder is out and an orca swims underneath them uh, and they've got that lovely beautiful drone shot that I'm not jealous of at all <laughs> that also blows up over the internet and then this this lie that orcas are only violent in captivity and because of captivity is propagated further so you'll see a trend to my answers with this this type of question because the answer is yet again no And unfortunately, again, it's another thing that's often ranted about by the misinformed to convince anyone who will listen to their anti-zoo agenda. But whilst human death by orca incidents are rare, no matter their living situation, it's obviously going to be rarer in locations where the two species do not cross paths as often. And that's obviously the deep blue sea. So I want to go through a few examples so that I'm being fair and unbiased. So with all that said... Uh, an orca pod tried to tip an ice flow with a sled dog team and their photographer upon it. Uh, as far as I'm aware, they were fine. A surfer in California was bitten in the 70s. A boy in the water, uh, I think in British Columbia, I think, is a, it was an area of water where where orca prey is uh, frequently hang, hanging out. And uh, this boy found himself being rammed by an orca uh, that apparently misidentified him. Um, so it's not just sharks that do this. 
Uh, yeah, and none of these incidents that I've just listed were fatal. There have, however, been multiple anecdotal reports of lethal attacks on humans in the wild since the uh, 1910s, and boat attacks have remained frequent year on year, with more than 40 of them occurring last year. Now, in captivity, since the 70s, there have been more than 20 attacks, and again, the death toll, though important, is incredibly low. So with those answered, I want to say that for me personally, I am a supporter of good zoos. SeaWorld is a good zoo. I'm also a supporter of cetaceans in zoos, but with a caveat. I'm a believer that animals in our captive collections need to be justified. Meerkats, for example, are unjustifiable. The fact that people love them is not good enough reasoning to hold them. And I feel the same is true for a land mammal as it is for a marine mammal. Essentially, I support captive housing and care of cetaceans, which need the help of captivity. Mm. And I, I'll leave that opinion at that because I could go down into a huge rabbit hole there. But I want to quickly talk about conservation. So currently, the species is considered by the IUCN to be data deficient. This is largely due to the recognition that what was once thought to be one species may now actually be different species of orcas. Their main threats come in the form of prey depletion, which is we kind of covered with the uh, the whaling industry, habitat disruption, which is just a monstrous problem that is not likely to go away anytime soon. Oil spills are related to that, as well as other marine pollution. And also, it's not something that you often think about, but as a species at the top of its predatory game, they are also significantly more at risk of accumulating poisons, uh, including PCBs which would concentrate in their blubber. The blubber is then metabolized during periods of prey scarcity, which we're putting them under. Uh, and that in turn concentrates the poison in their blood because they're basically digesting it. Worryingly also, the sonar used by the US Navy has been known to cause these animals some serious health concerns, including an incident that took place involving uh, orca beaching themselves as a result of sonar being activated for an exercise in their territory. In closing, I want to say that this species, for whom their popularity has been a thorn in their side, to be quite honest, if I could impart a word of wisdom, it would simply be to ignore shit like blackfish and instead go and visit SeaWorld for yourself um, and talk to the people working there. I'm not saying visit just any marine park, just as I wouldn't say visit just any zoo. We do need to be picky. We need to vote with our wallets. But visit SeaWorld, hear them out. They do an incredible job. And also, don't be an edgelord. It's not a good look. Orca are cool. Get over it. Well, that was quite good, Aaron. Um, that's certainly a lot of knowledge about an animal, which I've got to admit, I, uh, I wasn't overly fond of learning too much about years ago because of things like Free Willy. I just, I. Yeah, I have to admit, I'm the same as well. Was sort of turned off them. Uh, although I do love the way that they hunt different species and the adaptation to uh, to being able to take down certain species uh, but yeah anyway that's um, that's a fantastic group of animals the orcas um, they have as many ways to kill as odin has names i mean yeah <laughs> so we'll, go, we'll go from our creature feature this week into our pop culture corner where we are looking at the woeful sound effects or the, the over-cliched sound effects that are used <laughs> for animals in Hollywood. Oh, look, it's Culture Corner. Okay, 
We're into this week's pop culture and we're going over, shall we say, the, the sins of the cinema industry when it comes to how animals are portrayed in audio format. We're going to uh, stick in some of the sounds of these different animals here so that you can hear them. And you've probably heard them uh, many, many times in almost any film that you've probably watched that has animals in it because they almost seem to be stock sounds that just get yeah. used over and over and over. These are essentially the animal equivalents of the Wilhelm scream. Yeah. And for anyone unfamiliar, this is the Wilhelm scream. <laughs> there it is. That's the Wilhelm scream, <laughs> which appears in almost every film, which I didn't know until uh, just the other day when we were we were researching this article, why it's called the Wilhelm scream. Well, the guy, the guy's character was called Wilhelm, wasn't it? I didn't, I didn't know that. I yeah. didn't, I didn't know that that's why it got called, uh, why that got, was. The he thing. got shot in the leg with an arrow. Yeah. That's right. Poor Wilhelm. But his yeah. scream lives on where he doesn't. So, yes. you know, it's in, it's in countless things. Anyway, we're not here to talk about Wilhelm and his scream. We're here to talk about animals. Uh, and the first one is the bald eagle, the patriotic symbol of North America, you know, that that bird that literally screams freedom with its yeah, call. Yeah, freedom, freedom personified. <laughs> yeah, so this section is going to be, as Gareth mentioned, very audio-based, which is good for a podcast, isn't it? Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. But yeah, not just bald eagles as well, like all eagles. Almost any non-owl bird of prey <laughs> in every film that they appear in always make this very long, loud, ethereal screech which is this sound here. It's like I'm standing oh. looking at a cliff or looking Majestic. at any kind of mountain because, you know, whenever there's a mountain, you hear that, that call, you know. Yeah, oh, it's, it's, it's beautiful. Uh, it's very impressive. And that is not the noise an eagle makes, funnily enough. This is the sound of a, a bald eagle for you all. Mm-hmm. That's the, that's the sound of freedom, um, <laughs> and I also have a sound uh, a sound clip of a golden eagle as well uh, because they're often also portrayed with this long ethereal screech. It goes like this. It's arguably less impressive. That's quite nice I though. Know. I quite like I I, I like them, but I I like the noise. Yeah. Yeah. If if you've been if all your media has basically told you that it make this massive screech, I suppose hearing that might be disappointing. Uh, but um, but yeah, that's the reality, I'm afraid. Uh, so the first sound I played, so that screech is of course the call of the red-tailed buzzard, which is more commonly and incorrectly called the red-tailed hawk. It's in the genus uh, Buteo, which is where basically all the old world buzzards uh, are within. But yeah, there is a uh, a bit of naming confusion there. But yeah, whenever you hear that noise coming from anything but a red-tailed buzzard, it's incorrect. They're, they're just using they're just using it because it's because it's incredible sounding. And yeah, quickly as too as I mentioned, owls. Almost all owls in all films use a sound clip of either a tawny owl or a great horned owl. Again, I've got clips of those too. So this is a this is a tawny owl. They do make a variety of different noises. We're in a dark and haunted forest now. Beautiful. Cold, and always... chilly. Yeah. And a great horned owl. Sounds like this. 
And uh, again, different species of owl make a, a variety of different noises. I, I don't think you could get further away from sort of a tawny or, uh, or a, a great horned owl as the barn owl, which, uh, again, I'll quickly, quickly give you guys a, a sound clip of. Uh, it was also called the ghost owl quite regularly as well. And you might, yeah. you, you might, <laughs> you might guess why, because of this. <laughs> like a banshee. Yeah, it was like a, it is like a banshee. And I mean, it's, Terrifying. <laughs> white underneath. It looks Not terrifying. It makes that noise. What and hangs around graveyards. Like. Mm. Nice. Mm. Yeah, that's a few birds that are misdepicted in uh, in the film. Mm. Well, I was going to say you always hear, you know, the uh, the owl sound whenever there's whenever there's a full moon, just like the wolves. You know, yeah, it's always howling at a full moon. It's always an owl at a full moon. It's always a uh, an eagle sound whenever there's a cliff or a mountain. Or a desert sort of scene, you know. There's always that. So uh... yeah, if you watch any sort of British British dramas as well, they're set at night as well. You will always hear a fox screaming in the background too. At least yeah. that's sort of semi-accurate that, because that is they ac- do do ac- that. Accurate. <laughs> <laughs> and is also terrifying to hear of a night if you're yeah, out it's right, nowhere. It's... Right, screech. It's normally like a vixen shouting for sex, isn't it? Pretty much. Here's <laughs> here's the sound of a fox. Actually, there's call yeah. to each other. And we yeah. actually heard it the other day, a male and a female calling to each other. But then also mm. the other day, we heard one of the one of the street cats. Well, it's not really a street cat. It's, it is someone's pet, but he's out on the street. Uh, she had a fight with a fox in the street. And oh, my God, it sounded like... Uh, it Hell sounded on like a, a double. It sounded like homicide. <laughs> it was awful. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we'll move on from birds, or this group of birds, mm. uh, to the other group that uh, gets so mixed up with um, with its sounds, and that's big cats, and, and also occasionally bears as well. So, Aaron, what have you got for us? Yeah, so I've focused mainly on the big cats, because, to be honest, they're the most commonly done, and also bears come into it a little bit at the end. But in general, whenever you hear particularly a lion, it's not a lion. Because lions, they have the most boring roar of <laughs> all the big cats. Yeah. Because their roar is like a moan. It's like a... It's, it's just so... It's, it's a very boring roar. It's not very threatening, I guess. And that's why they dub them over. So when you go to watch James Bond and the MGM lion is up and it's roaring, that's a tiger. And then the Lion King films... Lion King 1, Lion King 1.5 or whatever it is, Lion King 2, and probably Lion King Lion Guide if I wanted to watch that. And certainly the 2019 Lion King. That franchise is notorious for dubbing the the lions. Now, it actually is a little bit worse in Lion King because it's a little bit sexist. So with the female lions, what you hear is this. It's a lion of sorts. It, it's not a lion at all, Gareth. It's not even a big cat. <laughs> it's, got it in, it's got it in the name. It's <laughs> the closest name? it gets. This, this is the sound of a cougar. Um, what Gareth's referring to is the fact they're also called mountain lions, but they're also called purple feathers. They have about 42 different names in the English language, and they're a small cat. But that is, when you hear the lionesses fighting, 
a lot of the sounds that they put in is actually from pumas um, and particularly that noise. And you can see why, because it's a really cool noise. Mm. Um, however, for the males, uh, particularly for Simba's, Simba's final roar and certainly for Mufasa and a lot of his roars, you get this. And uh, I mean, that is a roar that has really earned its stripes. Because um, that's, that's a tiger roar, uh, which, again, not being biased because they're my favorite uh, animal, but um, it is the most impressive big cat roar. That roar goes through you on another level. When a lion roars, you can feel it in your rib cage. It really is quite impressive, as boring as it sounds, um, or pained as it sounds. But a tiger roar, that that smashes your bones and smashes your the very fibre of your existence is torn apart by the tiger roar. That when they roar right next to you, there's nothing more humbling on the planet than that. So that is the uh, that's how they dubbed them the females and the males. However, Lion King 2019, the live action one, that actually went a step further because not only was Mufasa's you know that the characteristic roar that Mufasa gives. Not only did they dub it over with a tiger roar, but they actually mixed into that into that single roar. They mixed in the sound of a tiger, a grizzly bear, and an F sixteen Falcon. What? <laughs> yeah. So there you have it. <laughs> That's like to make the lions seem impressive. And by the way, lions are impressive, but to make them seem more impressive than what they are, they mixed in essentially a better big cat a and big a bear jet. and and a fighter jet yeah <laughs> <laughs> right. well, there we have, go. We, have, have we got a um a lion sound clip by the way yes the i do have a lion call for you for you all um and and here it is <laughs> and, uh, right well we'll go on jet Ah, uh, the African savanna. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> a wild jet appeared. <laughs> the I mean, nothing's more terrifying there. than a lion with missiles attached to it. So, yeah. <laughs> well, nothing nothing screams, it, nothing screams top predator like that. So we'll go from the, um, the plains of Africa now to every <laughs> jungle on the planet with my personal hatred of this particular one. Oh, I know that, where you're going with this. And that is the kookaburra. Mm. I absolutely love kookaburras. They're the largest member of the kingfisher family. They come from Australia and live in what are known as sclerophyll forests. But if you've ever watched any film that has any kind of jungle, well, they live there as well. Because if you've ever watched any kind of film like that, you'll have heard this noise. <laughs> that wasn't bad (laughs) so yeah they get used ad nauseum for some absurd reason I'd love to know that I couldn't I I spent ages trying to find the reason why kookaburras get used I'm guessing it must be because they're a somewhat strange sounding bird 
Um, but they have a really iconic call as well that it, it just, in my mind, I can't believe that it's still used to this day. We're talking from some of the earliest, like Tarzan films, right the way through to modern day films that take place in a jungle setting. They're just chucked in there and you never see them, never see them. There's never any, you know, kookaburra brought on set to sit in the tree or something like that. Uh, it's it's just the sound of them. So that one always, always has irritated me. Some of the other ones that we've got as well, all penguins, just like we've covered in our myth busting segment as well. They, uh, they don't not just live in the cold, but they all have uh, almost duck sounds as well. When real penguins, well, depending on the species, sound very, very different. Members of the uh, the black-footed penguins, the Humboldts, all have that very distinctive braying call that they have. Whereas things like Gentoo penguins sound totally different, but they all get given that same almost duck-like call as well. Uh, and one one other jungle one that's certainly worth mentioning is any primate. Uh, any primate mm. has a chimp sound to it. Doesn't matter what it is, whether that animal makes totally different sounds. It's uh, just dubbed over with chimps, which is uh, which is just silly, because a lot of primates actually don't make very many noticeable sounds anyway. Um, a lot of them are quite silent, apart from if they're making sort of quite excessive sounds. But this is a chimp sound, just in case you'd forgotten what one sounds like. very very oh, horrible yeah i don't know i i don't mind I, I don't mind chimps it was one of those groups oh, of animals like that i've worked with that i i did enjoy we've also got some other worthy mentions as well dolphins are always making that same dolphin sound it's like the exact same dolphin sound regardless of what the dolphin is doing mm. when they have a massive range of vocalizations and any small mammal has that same sort of rodent chirping sort of sound uh, yes. I was watching Ace Ventura the other day, the, the, the first one, and the otter that comes out of his toilet at the very beginning is making what sounds like a chipmunk sort of sound, yeah. which is totally wrong for, a, uh, for an otter. This is the sound of an Asian small-clawed otter, which is what is coming out of the toilet. Oh, God, it's so annoying. <laughs> it's squeaky as all hell. <laughs> which all three of us have experienced up close and very, very loud, which, uh, yeah, they, they're probably the loudest otter, I think, around. Yeah, easily. But yeah, there is a multitude of, of sounds that are used in different films. Some films do get it right, though. One that's certainly worth mentioning is the bear sounds in The Revenant. Mm. Um, those are very realistic because they are... Well, that, was, that was a real bear. Uh, well, no, the... <laughs> was that not a real bear? That wasn't a real bear. That was. Um... I I thought Leo was a better better actor than <laughs> making than to, sweet love to Leo. Except except <laughs> a, a not real bear. Yeah, I mean that that scene is uh, is, is it's popular. really it's so visceral. Yeah, it's, but again, it's I mean it's it's really good. Not to sound sadist. Or it's anything, it's yeah, accurate. It's, 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 it's so very, it's so well very very real. Really visceral. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it's the sort of thing a bear would do if it is trying to defend yeah. its cub and you got in its way. So don't get in the way of bears. But uh, that yeah. one sounds very, very accurate to bear sounds because they've, they've used that. But yeah, there's our, there's our very sort of small sort of covering of, uh, of animal sounds. 
in the film industry, I reckon there's somewhere there's just a big button pad that you can get all of these animal sounds and they just use them, insert into various films. Um, I mean, I suppose it's cheaper than actually going out and, and recording, recording, yeah. recording, you know, a, a various different species of frog, depending on wherever you are, instead of just using the same one. Oh, all uh, whales all sound like humpback whales as well. Yeah. Another one. But, but there are some that are unnecessary. So some things like elephants, I mean, mm. their footsteps are completely silent, but in yes. film, they will also continuously thud. Um, well, they do that with dinosaurs as well. Yeah, I was just about to say, actually, would you would you guys reckon that dinosaurs probably would have had a, some some sort of soundproofing as well? Are you it telling uh, a giant animal that relies on eating other animals? Well, exactly, yeah. Warn every single creature in the vicinity for a good Bag. 10 minutes yeah. before Bag. it turns up? <laughs> it's like when in films, the animal or the creature, shall we say, because they do this with aliens as well, like it roars or it vocalises before oh, it's and then attacks. Unless it knows. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's being fair, you know. It's just like, <laughs> it you know, is, yeah. It's being fair. It's giving you a chance. But I think we should cover dinosaur movie mistakes in the future as well and further movie mistakes. Um, because yeah. this is uh, very much a rich, rich seam of of uh, almost myths. We're, we're on the border of pop culture and myths here. So, um, yeah. yeah. We basically just wanted to play some nice animal noises for you guys. Mm. Yeah. Oh, and the, the other big thing is most animals are actually silent most of the time, but that doesn't sound very good in films. You know, if you have a dog that just sort of sits there and occasionally makes the odd sound as opposed to barking madly at everything or a uh, a bird that's constantly making noise, but um, they don't sound as good if they're not making sounds. Anyway, so we'll move on now from our pop culture corner into our emails. Bing, you've got mail. Ooh, it's an email. Right, well, we're into this week's emails, and our first one, uh, Drew, I believe you've got, is about um, earthworms. Yes, so we've got an email from Steve Natureman, who asked, why do you always find worms in puddles? Hmm, suicidal. <laughs> well, yep. not entirely, but the one thing I can sort of say for some certainty, because there isn't very much certainty over worms, surprisingly, when you start looking into worms, there is... Um, well, there's a lot of gaps in our information and worms themselves are generally fascinating. For instance, do you know there were no native worms to North America? We basically brought them there and have introduced our own earthworms uh, into a place that didn't naturally have them. I did Why not know that. that. That's very interesting. We, we didn't. Other... Yeah, but we didn't knowingly do that. We've done that in bringing soil with us from from oh, uh, from Europe with the eggs. Oh, oh not not like arse worms. No, uh, there's a there are many many different types of worms. Many many different types of worms. So these ones are all fall under the um the round worm category. Uh, but we'll take it as uh in the UK in their natural environment. So when rain hits the ground it creates vibrations on the soil surface surface um <laughs> which there is an awful lot of rain, awful lot of vibrations at the moment. Um, that causes earthworms to come out of their burrows to the surface. Uh, no one's exactly sure why, though. They could be doing it to find food, because overnight they'll come up to the surface and pull down leaves into the soil. They'll also go looking for other mates, so they'll find another worm burrow, go down and, and try and mate. They may also be looking for new areas of soil. So there's many different reasons why they could be coming to the surface. But the one thing that is definitely true is they need to stay wet. If you've ever seen 
after uh, a nice you know rainy night and it's drying out you quite often find worms either in puddles or on concrete or you know areas that they can't just dig back down into the soil personally i try and pick up every worm i can and put them into the uh, the soil or onto the grass or something like that to to try and help them out but the probably the main reason why they're going into puddles themselves is well because they need to stay moist if worms don't stay uh, damp or moist they basically dry out and they die so um, that's probably one of the sort of last refuges after a big rainstorm is is things like that i've got a few other random bits on on worms as well because they are a fascinating group of animals um, can i so, ask you a question quickly Gareth? yeah yeah my understanding is that some species of bird basically do a river dance yes on yeah, the soil gulls, to, yeah to mimic oh, the yeah. Rain, raindrops yeah that's true isn't it yeah gulls, gulls fishermen do, do it sure. as well you mm. can uh, you'll quite often see fishermen doing this for for earthworms as well with a to sort of stamp on the ground a bit or use special sticks to encourage the worms mm. to come to the surface. Um, but yeah, it's, it is exactly why you'll quite often see a gull doing river dance on a, a patch of grass. And I absolutely love watching them doing that because it's hilarious. But uh, oxygen itself diffuses easily through air, obviously, uh, and soil um, stays aerobic because of the oxygen um, that comes in from the surface. But after rain, the soil pours uh, and the worm burrows fill up with water. The worms can't get enough oxygen through the soil um, when it's flooded. So they sometimes come to the surface just to breathe as well, which in itself is a, another good reason to, to go there for them. But earthworms are unable to drown in the same sense of a human can uh, survive several days fully submerged in water. So they can drown. It just takes a lot longer than than it would for us and longer than what the uh, very accurate worms armageddon would tend to oh, believe yes. which is as soon as they <laughs> enter the water they're dead <laughs> very few concrete donkeys in reality drop <laughs> yeah. well sadly yeah. um but yeah it's uh in fact some earthworms actually travel through liquid sort of filled tunnels they they make sure that their tunnels are nice and, and moist and damp and that way they can move around a lot easier um, but I did find a article from 2018, actually, that talks about people finding groups of w- really thin, small worms turning up in puddles in Florida, where rain brought out, as the article puts, creepy long worms in Cape Coral. Essentially, these are called horsehair worms. They're a closely related, but not that closely related group of worms that well live in damp soil and puddles and basically freshwater areas and the rain itself brought on these puddles full of these horsehair worms uh, which then made the news they're there all the time it's just every now and again you end up with large you know gatherings of these animals in in one particular place but i think in answering that the um the main reason is because as everything starts to dry out after the rain uh, and as the sun starts to come up they need to find somewhere damp and if they can't find their way back to soil to get underground. The next best place is probably a puddle. So, mm. yeah. Mm. Our next question, Drew, that you've got is, uh, well, it's, it's a quick fire one, I believe. Yes, it is a quick fire one. So, yes, yeah, so the next one is from Dan Loisiesi. And he said, you have to choose one. So he's given us three options. So the first option is you get to successfully bring back 10 extinct species. Second option, you get to save 10 living endangered species. 
So the third option is you get to reset climate change back 10 years. And he said, don't overthink. And I think he said, don't overthink, because we have a, have a habit of overthinking, particularly when it came to his question on uh, animals versus uh, other animals. Who wants to go first on this one? Aaron, do you want to start don't, us off? Don't overthink. Just go straight in. So we just have to pick one? Yeah. Yep. Let's pick one. Climate change right, back right. 10 years. Okay. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm going to say the same climate change, even though we'd probably mess it up in less than 10 years. <laughs> I mean, the reason I didn't pick that one, I know it's not saying overthinking it, but the reason I didn't pick that one is because I think it would just make people... Complacent? Complacent, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would pick the I would pick the second one. You get to save 10 living endangered species. or obviously say which ones, because that would take too much thinking. Yeah. But I think I'd just go straight for that. Shall we overthink it now? <laughs> <laughs> no, he said Dan not has to. The option to mute us. <laughs> That's true. Dan does have the option to stop listening as well. Because we've answered his question now. <laughs> I think so, yes, but, but I I agree with you, uh, Drew. In in that uh, the first one would make people complacent, and and your your choice is is probably the more practical at the moment. Yeah, yeah I I think bring back the extinct animals if that's the case because if you can't just if you're not going to stop if you're not going to even try to delay it then what's the point in saving the ones that are around well just bring bring back the 10 nastiest things that you could possibly yeah. bring back and just let them loose uh, unleash, yeah, fair enough. unleash the uter raptors <laughs> well there you go well, yep there we go thank without, you Dan. without overthinking it i think we did that one in almost record time i think um, so but if you uh, like our two listeners, they want to uh, to get in contact and send us your questions that we'll overanalyze uh, to the nth degree. If you want, uh, if not, we can. We, I'm sure we can do yeah, it. Yeah, please specify if you don't want us to. Because <laughs> yeah. really by default, we will. Then lies. If you want me to speak correctly, just let us know by uh, by sending us an email, and you can do that uh, by sending us uh, to our email address at thenathistorycupboard at gmail um, you can also get in contact with us on Twitter and on Facebook. Um, our Twitter handle is at NHCupboard, where we put up all sorts of different things. We put up your video, Aaron, of your wolf uh, myth busting. Mm. It didn't okay. cause us as much as much uh, sort of well, tension as I would have hoped, really. Maybe some I, people I missed did. it. I, I yeah. would implore people to go out and find it and, and watch it because it is genuinely really good. Yeah. So, yeah. And then if you, if you want to kick up a fuss, do that. <laughs> I don't know. I, maybe I'm being overcritical, but I thought it was very rushed, talking like a million miles per hour, and there was so many, so much you did, more to talk about that, really. You did very well, uh, considering that we did three way. takes to try and get there. <laughs> <laughs> That's a record for me, isn't it? I know, that that went really, uh, really <laughs> smoothly well. compared to everything. So that pretty much brings us to the end of this week's episode. So a big thank you to you, Drew. You're welcome. Ah. Technically, it was a dolphin. So, uh, true. Killer whale come. <laughs> Tillicum. Ah. Uh, yeah. Uh, there we go, Steve. Uh, and a big thank you, Aaron. Yeah, I'm just a simple man trying to make my way in the universe. <laughs> okay, Boba. <laughs> Get back in your unnamed starship for this week. And uh, remember, if you were. Uh, well, liked what you heard, um, you can uh, leave us a review, um, like us, subscribe, tell your friends, tell your enemies, shout at uh, a river full of whales or a uh, river full of human poo. Um, but 
That's yeah, don't open your mouth too wide whilst you're in the uh, in the river or, or the no, sea yeah. around UK waters. <laughs> That's just but, to keep your mouth shut. Is that a brown trout? I think not. <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> uh, and of course, a big thank you uh, to you at home for listening. Uh, and we'll see you next time here in the Natural History Cupboard. Bye. No more mutants. Thank you.